Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian O'Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Bennett Capers, Stanley A. August Professor of Law at Brooklyn Law School. We will discuss his article, Afrofuturism, Critical Race Theory, and Policing in the Year 2044, which is published in the New York University Law Review. So welcome to the show, Bennett. Uh, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, the pleasure's all mine. As you know, I've been following your work with interest for a long time, and you always pick like really fun, cool, and provocative subject matter to write about. I'm especially pleased that this article came out in the Law Review that I was an editor on, the NYU Law Review. So I thought that was pretty cool, and um, and I'm really looking forward to talking about it because I think you um, you you engage with a lot of really um, really kind of rich and historically interesting material in in the piece. But for listeners who might not be that familiar with the subject matter, I wonder if you could start by talking a little bit about Afrofuturism and and what it is. So sure. And I feel that I should also sort of say a few words about what got me interested in this project. So it probably won't be a surprise to you or to anybody listening uh, that uh, when the movie Black Panther came out, um, lots of people went to see it, especially African-Americans, and it it was a groundbreaking film. It was um, representation of African-Americans, Africans on screen, and sort of showing what could be, sort of showing this... um, in a way, alternative future. And that sort of sparked an interest in Afrofuturism. Lots of people saw Black Panther as an exemplar of Afrofuturism. Um, and that led me to sort of learn more or want to learn more about Afrofuturism and to this piece. So the term Afrofuturism um, seems to date from 1994. Uh, there was an influential essay written by a cultural critic by the name of Mark Deary, who used the term Afrofuturism in an essay called Black to the Future. And he used the term to describe, quote, speculative fiction that treats African-American themes and addresses African-American concerns in the context of 20th century technoculture. And obviously, um, you know, examples of, you know, what we would consider Afrofuturist art um, existed before then. What he was doing was really giving a name to something that was already in the atmosphere. Um, so we had works before then, we've had works since then. And the other thing, Brian, is, um, you know, other um, scholars, other thinkers have sort of added to the definition of Afrofuturism. But at bottom, um, I think Afrofuturism is, is really um, describing um, work that imagines a future with Black people in it and imagines a promising future, a future in which um, Black people thrive. Um, and in a way, Afrofuturism in itself is a radical idea because so many conceptions of the future, um, uh, minorities are relatively invisible. 
So, you know, when we think of things like, you know, Star Trek or Star Wars or Minority Report or RoboCop, um, you know, when we think of images of the future, uh, whites remain in the majority, which is sort of um, very different from what um, 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 census projections um, see the future as. Yeah. I mean, and one thing that really struck me and seems so obvious once I read it in, in your paper, but, but hadn't occurred to me before was how central this sort of visioning of the future through a sort of racially progressive lens has been in African American history. I mean, you, tra- you trace back versions of Afrofuturism all the way to to scholars and writers like Martin Delaney back in the mid 19th century, sort of how has the history of this engagement with Afrofuturism or maybe proto-Afrofuturism sort of played a role in African-American social and political thought? So I think the the role it's played is still um, an ongoing one. It's still a burgeoning one. Um, You know, I think if you asked most African-Americans, what's your understanding or, or, you know, knowledge of Afrofuturism, for many people, it might begin with Black Panther, oddly enough. Um, You know, if you press them, um, and if they're sort of like me, like, uh, you know, heavily into lots of... high culture, low culture, and everything in between, you know, they might add artists like Sun Ra and Janelle Monet. Um, if they're my age, they might go all the way back to Parliament Funkadelic. Um, but it's, it's been sort of, sort of a cultural practice that um, I think to date really hasn't translated into anything such as a political practice. So it's, it's, a, it's an art movement. Um, and I think it's only recently that people are beginning to think, well, what would Afrofuturism actually mean in practice? Mm, yeah, well, and and as you point out in the article, I mean, there is this sort of unsurprising, I think, deep relationship to Afrofuturism and the history of slavery in in the United States, sort of imagining not only the future, but also kind of a future with a different past. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about sort of the role that slavery has played in sort of the Afrofuturist worldview or kind of project, maybe. So one of the interesting things for me that I uh, discovered when I was researching Afrofuturism was sort of a link in a way of thinking that had never crossed my mind before, that for so many Afrofuturists, if, if we think of a lot of science fiction as involving aliens descending to us and capturing a bunch of people and enslaving them, um, that actually starts to sound a lot like uh, Europeans coming to Africa and enslaving a lot of Africans. So Afrofuturists early on were seeing these parallels between sort of science fiction and the lived experience of Africans who were enslaved. Um, and by the same token, they were um, imagining, well, what if that had never happened? 
um, how might things have been different? Mm, yeah, I mean, one thing that really struck me was the way in which it seems like Afrofuturists could kind of see the guilty conscience of science fiction and of sort of broader, more broadly speaking, white kind of culture in a way that it couldn't see it itself and sort of reframed a lot of those themes that sort of on their face were not racially charged and sort of pointed out where they came from? Yeah, yeah. I also think, you know, and I think this is true of lots of artists of color, whether they're working in the science fiction genre or any other genre, whether it's, you know, highbrow literature, music, whatever. So many people of color are actually just trying to write themselves into um, the narrative. Like, um, so I, th- I think that transcends Afrofuturism. Um, so, uh, you know, Toni Morrison uh, writes a lot about this in her collection of essays, Playing in the Dark. I mean, just the, the idea of asserting oneself and sort of saying, I am. Yeah, right. And and so one of the other moves you make in the article, which I thought was really quite compelling, was to point out certain kind of conceptual links between Afrofuturism and the critical race theory movement. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about sort of what critical race theory is, where it came from, and how you see that connection to Afrofuturism. So critical race theory, and it's it's uh, critical race theory is uh, uh, one of those schools. It's sort of a big tent school. There's no um, specific, uh, you know, list of tenets that um, followers have to follow, um, but it does have certain, um, I guess, core elements. Um, and, you know, so much of critical race theory, which sort of like, you know, has its origins at Harvard Law School, you know, we tend to think of Derek Bell, Professor Derek Bell, sort of being the father of critical race theory. And basically critical race theory, um, you know, which sort of split off from critical legal studies was a way to think about race differently. It was a way to think about race and the law in ways that went beyond, um, sort of civil rights reforms and to think in a way that was um, obviously more critical, sort of seeing race as more foundational to what the law is, what the country is, um, and being willing to expose, reveal, and engage with that at all levels. So, um, you know... uh, I can say more about critical race theory. I mean, it's uh, it's such a big ten. I'm actually um, co-editing a book, and I hope you don't mind. I'm making plugs for other things. <laughs> podcast. I'm actually co-editing a book with um, Devin Cabado at UCLA, Robin Lenhart at Fordham, and Angela Onwuaki Willig, who's the dean at Boston University Law School. We're co-editing a book called Critical Race Judgments, in which we are inviting about 35 um, critical race scholars to 
I say we are inviting, we've already invited them, the book is almost done, to reimagine, rewrite um, um, Supreme Court opinions from a critical race theory perspective, as if a critical race judge was sitting on the Supreme Court. Um, you know, and imagine the work that critical race theory can do, um, you know, reimagining these opinions. Okay, but back, back to Afrofuturism and critical race theory and policing in the year 244. That's, that's, I will, that's my plug for that book. Although at one point I do want to plug something else I'm working on, but I will save that for later. Of course, of course. But one thing that I really thought was cool um, and that listeners might not be aware of is that, you know, as you know, Derek Bell played this incredibly important role in the sort of creation or formalization of critical race theory. But there was also, as you point out, a kind of Afrofuturist element to a lot of his best known work. Could you talk about that for just a sec? Sure. In fact, uh, my introduction to Derek Bell was when I was a law student at Columbia and Derek Bell came to speak um, and he spoke about his um, piece, um, The Chronicle of the Space Traders, um, which is sort of a story he tells of imagining a future in which real aliens, well, I say real, but aliens <laughs> come from another planet, uh, descend on the Earth, um, and basically say we have resources, oil, whatever you need, all these resources to make life on Earth perfect. We only ask for one thing in return. Um, we'd like your African-Americans um, so we could take them back to our planet, um, presumably as chattel. Um, so his, his um, space traders piece was really sort of imagining, um, you know, uh, a future world and basically um, – the uneasy sort of relationship between whites and African-Americans in this country, the idea of belonging, the idea of like exactly at the end, who will have your back? Um, so in a way, uh, you know, uh, Derek Bell was an Apple futurist. He was sort of imagining um, a story that involved a dystopian future, but still he was imagining a future. And uh, another interesting thing about Derek Bell is he did that in several of his chronicles. So the other thing that he did repeatedly, and I learned about this after law school, um, was he wrote these chronicles with a um, basically an alter ego that would travel back in time um, and engage with our founding fathers and to uh, really sort of warn them about what they were about to do, for example, in um, drafting a constitution that wrote slavery into it or wrote race into it. Um, so he was looking backwards and forwards. Yeah, and this is a little bit of an aside, but I didn't realize what a sort of important role students actually played in the early days of the critical race theory movement. And I wonder if you want to just give them a little shout out, because I thought that was really cool. Sure. So critical race theory, um, most people sort of see its start as, uh, you know, around the time Derek Bell was at Harvard, uh, Harvard 
um, basically had not hired, I think, ever an African-American female. I think at most, I, Derek Bell was the first African-American law professor at Harvard, I think. And maybe there was one more, I'm not sure. But basically, uh, he protested and decided to leave. Um, and students responded, uh, students supported him, you know, because basically he was like, hire more people or I will leave. The school refused. Um, and uh, students sort of, uh, the black and minority students uh, supported him in his choice, but they also insisted that Harvard began hiring people. Um, so they really protested when Harvard, um, and I'm not sure how much of this I have in the article, but basically the dean at Harvard sort of gave the usual excuses of like, oh, well, we can't find anybody qualified. Um, so what the students actually started doing was they started an alternative course at Harvard in which they would invite professors from other schools to come teach a class each week that related to race and rights. Um, and that was one of the early starts of students at Harvard thinking differently about race and the law. And those students at the time were some of the biggest names in, you know, now that we think of in critical race theory. So, you know, Kimberly Crenshaw, um, so many others were like there as students. And this was their beginning. Um, this, this was sort of how critical race theory actually started. There was sort of a second strain, a second sort of impetus that happened years later when a group of, so some of these students went on to become professors. They also became part of the critical legal studies movement, but then they split off. Um, but those same students, a lot of those, those same professors who split off from critical race theory, a lot of those professors started off as students at Harvard during this time of unrest. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and no, I thought that was really, really, really cool and something a story I hadn't heard before. So I was really glad that you told it. Um, so it, it, the bulk of your paper is in a way a kind of exercise in Afrofuturism itself, as well as a sort of meditation on the Afrofuturist project, um, thinking about specifically what policing might look like in 2024, 2044, a sort of majority minority United States. Um, so, so I wonder, how do you think Afrofuturism and critical race theory can help in that project. Why did you see Afrofuturism and critical race theory as a tool for thinking about this particular future? Well, it, it starts off with this. I mean, if the projections are that by 2044, um, this country will um, sort of um, flip from being majority white to majority minority, to me, it made sense to sort of look to people who've imagined the future to see the people of color who've imagined the future, see what their imagines, imaginations are. Um, so for that, it, it meant to me, obviously, looking at Afrofuturist, um, who by definition are looking at the future. It also made sense to me to look at critical race theory scholars, in part because of their um, involvement in the law, and in part because they've always... Um, been interested and committed to imagining a future in which the 
racial hierarchies that we see now and other inequalities in terms of class sexuality no longer exist. So for me, it was like, well, what would happen? How would these people imagine the future? How do they imagine a future in which uh, people of color are in the majority um, and with respect to policing, um, they hold the keys to the courthouses and the keys to the prisons. So what would this future, what might that future look like? And I should stress, uh, this project is really my imagining of how they would imagine the future. So it's not the definitive, like, oh, you know, 2044 will definitely look like this. But um, I, this is how I would imagine a lot of Afrofuturist and critical race theorist thinking about the future. And a lot of that, if I can just uh, add a little bit more, I've always, uh, well, always sounds like since I was born, <laughs> but, you know, um, you know, I've long had an interest in policing and technology. So also Afrofuturism seemed like a perfect fit because one sort of um, crucial point about Afrofuturism is an embrace of technology and specifically an embrace of technology that um, uh, provides a net good, especially technology that um, can um, eliminate some of the disparities we see now. One of the things I found really powerful about your article was the way that you present a kind of cynical vision of the future, and then you present a very different vision informed by Afrofuturism and, and critical race theory. And I wonder if you could talk about the difference between those two, um, because the cynical versions seem to reflect something, you know, kind of colored by a racial past that's very unfortunate. And the more positive, um, forward-looking vision, I, I found really compelling. Brian, when you first started asking the question, you obviously could not see this because we're doing this uh, um, over our computers, but uh, a smile came to my face uh, because one thing uh, that might not be um, obvious um, from my from reading my article or to the listeners is how much fun this was to write and part of uh the fun in writing this was thinking about what a lot of white americans might think the future might look like when the country tips to being majority minority um uh so i have um a section of the article that you were just referencing um and the section title is uh black to the future or fear of a black planet uh which hopefully gives a sense of sort of the humor i wanted to use in this um you know um and it includes um i think it includes uh the idea that you know um in this sort of white imagination of the future, uh, you know, um, um, you know, 
black singers will have white backup singers. Um, you know, there'll be, you know, protests that the Oscars are too black and the Grammys are too black. Um, but basically everything would be flipped. Um, so I sort of wanted to give almost a quasi sort of um, view, almost dystopian view. Um, and I'm not sure it's the make America great again view of what the future might look like as um, as the country becomes more majority minority. Um, but almost um, just a more... Um, um, it might even be a, a, a section that could even be making fun of uh, white liberals about what they might really think the future would look like um, in a in a majority minority scenario. Um, so uh, for that section, I just wanted to have fun, but also I wanted to get people to think seriously and critically. Like, what do you think the future will look like? Like, clearly, from depictions in Hollywood, depictions in culture, we have a sense of the future um, where the future normally looks the same, and yet we also have this fear um, that the future will be very different, which ex explains a lot of the anxiety over voting rights and other things like that. So I wanted to play. I wanted to have fun. I wanted to be serious at the same time. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I really liked about it was that it really emphasized and drove home the humanity and charity that are sort of so deeply embedded in Afrofuturism and critical legal studies. Yes, because the contrast that I wanted to show is that when you really think about, so you could, we could easily imagine a world where, um, you know, the, or I say world, I keep saying a world when I really mean the U.S. We could easily imagine the United States of America that becomes um, majority minority, which uh, is about... Um, you know, basically an, a different kind of power grab where people who used to be on the bottom are now on the top and they're wielding that power um, to maintain inequality, but an inequality in which they are now the higher ups and um, the white minority is now on the bottom. Um, but in reality, when we look at Afrofuturist thinking, when we look at critical race theory thinking, so much of that is predicated not on, uh, you know, you had, it's, it was your turn, now it's our turn. It's actually predicated on a world in which there is complete equality. Um, so it's not a sort of um, kind of vindictive, it's our turn. It's more like, let's build a world where we all share equally. Um, so it's sort of uh, a, a radical vision of equality that I wanted to, um, you know, emphasize and, and share. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, so Bennett, in in closing, I, I I can't help but observe that, like so much science fiction, and I think like so much Afrofuturism as well, your article uses a vision of the future in order to talk about today. So I wonder if you could reflect a little bit on what your article tells us about policing today. Um. Sure. Uh, today, I, I mean, I think one thing it tells us is right now, policing is very much, very much raced. It's always been raced. Um, the article talks about uh, criminal procedure jurisprudence um, and argues that 
that has always been raised. Uh, basically, we've we've always had a system that has been about a certain type of control, a certain type of social control. Um, and this article hopefully reveals that and challenges that and shows how things can be very different if we imagine a future um, that's very different. It even imagines a future in which the Supreme Court is led by a very wise Latina, um, Chief Justice Sonia Sotomayor, who has at her side other justices of you know, different races, different religions, different sexualities, and how jurisprudence might change. Um, so again, it's an optimistic piece. And criticizing the status quo or, you know, sort of showing a mirror to how we live now, also projecting out in the future to how things could be different. And um, since I promised to make one more plug, um, I'm just going to briefly say that, um, you know, I'm a big fan of futurism, not just Afrofuturism. So I'm hoping more scholars will really think about futurist legal scholarship. I'm trying to do my part because I've also been working on a new piece, um, which relates to my other interests, which is sexual assault. So in that new piece, I'm actually looking at feminist utopias to see how they imagine a future without unwanted sex. So um, um, you heard it first here. (laughs) Excellent. I can't wait to read it. And honestly, I think uh, uh, a lot of my listeners will agree with me that I I don't want to wait until 2044 to get the future that you imagine in this article. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Such a nice thing to say. Thanks, Brian. (laughs) (laughs) So, Bennett, it's been a real pleasure having you on the show. And um, I just want to, you know, recognize um, how much fun your article was to read. And I hope listeners will go check out the full piece because we only touched on a very small part of what you cover in, in the article. Thanks, Brian. I'm so glad we got a chance to do this. sound a bit odd. It comes from beyond the cosmos. Here in rocket number nine, a Sun Ra. He was born with the name Herman Sonny Blount. He had a dream where he was summoned by robed figures. They told him to keep inside of a narrow beam of light, and they all traveled upwards until they reached their destination, the planet Jupiter. Herman Blount Changed his name legally to Lesunny Ra, but performed under the name Sun Ra. In 1952, he proclaimed that he was a citizen of Saturn, not of Earth, that he was not a human, but rather of an angel race. He was here to serve as the cosmic communicator, bringing the creator's message to benighted Earthlings. 